Morning. Welcome to the Calvary Chapel live stream. It's a pleasure to be with you to share God's word. Be in the book of Luke 14. Um, something you might notice is a little different is the uh, email address on the lectern. We're trying something new just to uh, engage with you and to have a bit more interaction. If you have a question during the message, please feel free to email that question. And after uh, the end, we will, I will attempt to answer those questions best I can. Uh, and if you're watching not on the live stream, you're welcome, of course, to send in questions during the week and we'll try to address them for you. Um, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, that you have the answers to our questions. And even when we're asking the wrong question, Lord, you are faithful and gracious and kind. And we're so, so thankful that you've had compassion on us, that you give us your wisdom. And Jesus Christ has become our wisdom, that you give us new life through the gospel. I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit. You'd give us understanding of your truth. You'd help us to walk in your ways and to do your will so that you'd be glorified now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Something I find really intriguing and um, impressive about Jesus is how he was uh, gracious. He was loving to all people at all times. I mean, he knew what people were thinking and he still continued to love them and teach them. And he was faithful to rest in and work for God who is almighty and sovereign. And he wasn't dismayed by opposition. He wasn't downcast or depressed because people weren't hearing him or uh, had rejected him or he knew would betray him. He didn't let those things weigh him down. But for the joy that was set before him, he endured. And he went, uh, he saw beyond the cross and uh, beyond the suffering for the work that he knew would be accomplished. Solomon, he observed that more solo, sorrow brings more, excuse me, more knowledge, it brings more sorrow. It's like the more you know, the more there is that could uh, produce sorrow in your life. But Jesus, though he knew all things, he chose to rejoice. He chose to focus on the joy before him rather than the sorrow around him. And oh, to have that mind, the mind of humility and faithfulness to honor and obey God, uh, to keep loving, to keep giving grace, diligent to do God's will, and may that mark us as his people. May people see Jesus in us through our love. Looking to God in faith, it's a key to growth and fruitfulness, even in tough times. It, it may be that uh, you're suffering a little bit of... A fatigue from COVID and needing to be sequestered away or to be keeping distance. But uh, know that we can have the joy of the Lord and walk with him because he's, he's with us. That uh, Jesus, he knew for certain what was going to happen. He knew the hearts of his hearers. We don't have that luxury. Uh, we don't have knowledge of times and seasons that are in God's own power. But for, for those who are weak, we can come to God for strength. Those who are, they need wisdom. Lord, I've been a fool. I need your wisdom. He will supply that wisdom. If we are weary and heavy laden, we come to God and find rest for our souls. God has glorious plans. And we can feel like, you know, I feel down or I feel done. But no, God is not done. He is working and he has plans for you um, even after the earth dissolves and the, st the stars fall from the sky. So I, I'm convinced he's going to continue to speak to you today. He is going to comfort and encourage and guide us into his truth. 
So we're in Luke 14, starting in verse 1. It says, as it ha- Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. And he took him and healed him and let him go. At the end of Luke 13, Jesus exhorted people to strive to enter the kingdom of God. That narrow, difficult way that that's the only way to salvation is through the gospel, through faith in Jesus Christ. And there were many who would seek to enter heaven or the kingdom of God and would be cast out. They'd be prevented because they hadn't trusted in Jesus Christ as their savior. And Jews believed because of their family connection to Abraham and having entered into that covenant through circumcision that they were guaranteed entry into God's kingdom. Like if anyone was going to get in, they would. But faith in Jesus, that's the only way to eternal life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The Pharisees had warned Jesus that Herod was seeking to kill him. But Jesus said, I'm going to keep doing miracles until I'm glorified. And he, he was unfazed. He continued to serve. He continued to do miracles. And after this conversation, Jesus was invited to eat bread in the house of a Pharisee. On the Sabbath day, this is really more amazing to me than the fact Jesus ate with tax collectors and uh, known sinners because it was the Pharisees, not tax collectors, who were seeking to uh, kill him. They had a plot against him to overthrow him to really assassinate him. And verse one says they watched him closely. They were scrutinizing him. They were looking for fault. And if, if I had known the hearts of these hypocrites, I would not have given them the time of day, but uh, praise the Lord, I'm not Jesus. Jesus, he came to seek the, the lost sheep of Israel. They were the ones who needed saving. They didn't realize it. They didn't realize they were lost. And at this Pharisee's house, there was a man before Jesus who had dropsy. Now, the Greek term, it gives the impression of retaining water, like a severe edema. The swelling, it was obvious, it was likely painful and probably irreversible. They, they wouldn't have been able to treat it. The scene reminds me of Luke 6, that passage in Luke 6, where there was a man in the synagogue with a withered hand. And the Pharisees and scribes were watching him closely because they just knew Jesus was going to do something about it. Uh, And in verse three of this chapter, it says, and Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees. Notice Jesus is not answering a verbal question. He is responding to the things they were thinking about him in their hearts. He knew their intents. He answered them by asking a question and then by healing this man. Based on the previous passage, Like when Jesus loosed the woman who was bound by that spirit of infirmity, she wasn't able to stand up straight for 18 years. On the Sabbath day, these uh, Pharisees saw that as unlawful work. There was no such prohibition in the law, but they deemed it uh, to be breaking the Sabbath that you would heal. And uh, yeah, how, how can miraculous healing from God be forgetting the Sabbath or making it unholy? Those around the table, they remained silent at Jesus' question, and Jesus healed the man and let him go. And this shows that it's always lawful and appropriate and good to show mercy and compassion and love to heal, even on the Sabbath day. Every day is fitting for that. 
Colossians 2 explains the keeping of the Sabbath according to the law of Moses as a shadow. And it's a shadow in itself it has no substance. It is a dark area that's caused by an object being in the sun. And so a shadow is cast by that object. It's not the real thing. It's, it's cast by the real thing. And so the law was the shadow and Jesus was the thing. He is the substance that they were to rest in. He is their Sabbath. He is our Sabbath. He's the God who wrote the law, who guides in truth and righteousness, not with uh, words written on uh, stone tablets, but on our very hearts. Rest from labor and worship uh, of God is good. We do that on a Sunday We can do it any day during the week. That's a good work. The avoidance of labor or activity, it doesn't give you rest for your soul. You can take a holiday, but it doesn't mean that your soul has been restored. And we only have that through faith in Jesus. Luke 14, verse 5. Then he answered them saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. Again, Jesus answered the silent scribes and Pharisees with a question. He says, if your donkey or ox fell into a pit on the Sabbath day, wouldn't you immediately pull it out? If their donkey or ox, which was valuable property, had fallen into trouble on the Sabbath, they would have rushed to help it. A man stood before them in a terrible state. Should they show less compassion for him than they would for their own animal? Would they prevent this man from receiving the help he needed from God? It was way more work to, I I can't even imagine trying to do this, but if your ox that weighs over a ton fell into a ditch, uh, that would be a lot of work to pull it out. But it was far less work, no work at all really, for Jesus to heal this man. And they could not answer the questions poised by Jesus. It would only expose their hypocrisy if they did. And he was spot on. They would lifted, have lifted their animal to safety if they fell on the Sabbath. And they justified exceptions to rules because of an emergency. Was this man in any less trouble? Let me say that it's highly unlikely that even the strongest man or woman on the planet whose ox fell into a ditch would try to single-handedly pull it out. He would call his friends together, get some ropes and pulleys and digging tools and the restrictions on how many steps you were supposed to take on the Sabbath day. That was out the window. And with his example, Jesus pointed out that personal ownership impacts uh, your actions. That if these men saw him as a brother, as someone with whom they were connected, as their own father or brother or son, they would have rejoiced over his healing. We don't even see them being glad that the man was healed. It gets me thinking that when Jesus did something good and miraculous and right, the religious leaders didn't think it should be even done. And it, it is a sobering thought to think, am I like that? Is there, is there something that Jesus has done that I am silent about? I'm not praising God about it because I I have a problem with it. It goes against my tradition or my understanding of what the scripture says. Condemning Jesus rather than praising God. They would have thanked their friends who helped them lift old Bessie out of the ditch, but they didn't see this man as valuable or their responsibility when he was healed by Jesus. And there's never a biblical reason to restrain compassion, love, and mercy. 
Those are always appropriate. This example of the ox or donkey being pulled from the pit with the healing of this man, we have a picture of fallen humanity. That if that animal remained in the pit, it would become its tomb. It was unable to lift itself out. This man, he was unable to heal himself. We're all like that silly donkey or stubborn ox that falls into the pit. Jesus has come and shown compassion on us to lift us from that pit of sin and death and to free us from the chains and the bondage. This diseased man, he could not cure himself and the religious people, they couldn't help him either. It took a miracle from Jesus to bring health to his body. And it takes a miracle for your soul to be saved through believing Jesus and trusting in him. And even those who have been pulled from the pit, we can fall into sin. And praise the Lord that he is able to restore us. He's able to revive us. He's able to help us. And we need to trust and look to him now as much as ever. So seeing that God has had such compassion on us, we ought to have compassion on others. Luke 14, verse 7. So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place. So that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The scribes and Pharisees are scrutinizing Jesus, but Jesus has made some observations of his own. He noted how they chose the best places for themselves, and... Uh, in that culture, it wasn't to avoid the rickety stool or choosing the, the comfy couch with cushions. It was sitting close to the host because in that culture, where you sat, it showed how much honor you had or were given. The one sitting closest, that was closest to the host, that would be the most honorable position. I don't know if it's a thing in Australia, but when I was a kid in the U.S. and it was time to go to the car, kids would yell, shotgun. And that meant you called the front seat. Uh, and that was the preferred place. Now, one e explanation of the origin of the phrase, though it wasn't used in those days, is where you had the stagecoach and uh, those, the driver would be sitting outside that hot and cabin getting bounced around and the man riding shotgun would be the one holding the shotgun to protect uh, kind of guarding and a deterrent of any thieves or robbers. And the term became popularized with Hollywood depictions. And uh, so among kids, the unwritten rule was, if you call shotgun first, you can't be in the car. You have to be out of the car. Whoever says it first, it's yours. And I can imagine a bunch of Pharisees are trying to call shotgun. They're kind of all moving towards this one seat. And the smart ones are aiming for like seat three or four because not everyone's moving for those and they'll get some honor. But then if you went for the seat of honor and you were, everyone's in your way, then you have to slowly make your way to the end. Jesus noticed how everyone went for the best seat possible and he gave instruction concerning a wedding feast. So he didn't say a dinner, he said a wedding feast and a wedding. That was like the high point 
of the Jewish calendar as far as social occasions go, an opportunity for honor. Now, in a modern wedding in the West, there's typically assigned seating. That's to make sure there's room for the wedding party and the immediate family. And it's ironic. You can go to a wedding to celebrate the union of two, a man and a woman in marriage before God and, and be pretty annoyed that you had to move seats or that you're not sitting where you should be sitting or somebody else is sitting. She's not even part of our family and she's sitting there and kind of be uptight and upset about that. Jesus used the pronoun you for each person to take to heart what he is saying. And he says, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place. Jesus said it could be that someone more honorable than you, I mean, who can imagine that? Someone more honorable than you might be invited and then you'd be asked to move and have to go to the lowest place because that's the only seat that would be available. They're not going to make everybody else get up and kind of do musical chairs all the way down to the end. No, you have to go to the end. Jesus said, when you're invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. The one who demands honor for themselves that brings shame. But the one who humbles themselves, they'll be publicly singled out for promotion. And the point that Jesus is making is much bigger than etiquette at wedding feasts or good manners and social situations, but concerning our relationship with God. When the Jews accused Jesus of making himself to be more than whom he was, he said in John 8, 54, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. The same thing applies in self-promotion. If we seek to Get honor for ourselves. If we honor ourselves, it's nothing. God will honor those who humble themselves. The Pharisees were guilty of self-promotion. Jesus warned them they were headed for shame. Now it's important to point out that Jesus is not talking about paying your dues or uh, you need to start at the bottom with an aim to earn a better seat. Because that can be your motive, right? You take the low place hoping to be promoted, hoping you'll be recognized. And it's not about fairness, like when we were kids and we kept at track, who had had shotgun last? Hey, you sat up front yesterday. I get to sit up front today. It's not about fairness at all. A humble heart is not keeping track of who sits where and how often they sit there or how unfair the seating arrangement has been. A humble person's just happy to have a lift so they don't have to walk miles. In our culture, we're perhaps not put off by assigned seating because it's acceptable. And we understand that it serves a practical function. But how about when someone else gets promoted and you put in the hard yards and we're overlooked? How about going first or having first choice? Abraham, he allowed his nephew Lot to take his choice of which land to settle in. And he wasn't upset that he chose the most lush region to settle in because he trusted God to provide for him, that his, all his needs in God would be met. So Lot could settle anywhere and it was no problem for him. Psalm 75, four through seven, it gives us other examples of how we can promote ourselves. It says, I said to the boastful, do not deal boastfully and to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck. For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one 
and exalts another. This is talking about tooting your own horn or boasting, singing your own praises. We're not to seek honor for ourselves with our mouth or to cut others down. God is the judge. He's the one who puts one down and he raises someone else. In the Bible, I love that it gives us examples of how we ought to live and also pitfalls to avoid. And I started thinking about who were some self-promoting people in the Bible. And I think Haman, he's got to be one of the poster boys of pride. His life was absolutely consumed with seeking honor for himself. And it totally led to his downfall. When there was one Jew named Mordecai who, who refused to kowtow to him on the street, he decided, I am going to exterminate all the Jews. He was so impatient to rid himself of Mordecai, even after it was signed into law that the Jews would be destroyed, that he went to the king for special permission to hang Mordecai. Meanwhile, the king, he's been up all night. He hasn't been sleeping and the chronicles are being read before him. And he's just heard a story about how Mordecai, the Jew, intervened and saved him from a plot by two of the eunuchs that kept the door. So Haman comes in. And the king asks him, what shall be done for the man for whom the king delights to honor? And he's thinking, who could the king want to honor more than me? He's obviously thought about this. And so he begins to trot out all these things that he would love to have, like uh, wearing a royal robe, wearing a crown on his head, riding on a horse that's only been ridden by the king at, or has been ridden by the king with an honorable prince walking before him, shouting for everyone to hear, thus shall it be done for the man uh, to the man for whom the king delights to honor. The king, he was thrilled with that suggestion. He says, do everything you've said. You're the man. Do everything for Mordecai the Jew. And so Haman spent the whole day proclaiming before Mordecai, thus shall it be done for the man whom the king delights to honor. The Pharisees, they claimed to have the keys to the kingdom of God, but they were the ones who were going to be cast down with shame. They would be prevented from entering the kingdom because they did not trust in Christ and rejected him. And Jesus lays down this principle in verse 11. He says, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Satan exalted himself. He says, I will be like the most high, and he will be cast down into hell. Mankind, they gathered together to build this great uh, tower to the heavens, to make a name for themselves. But a dusty ruin was all that remained for their shameful failure when God confused their languages and the project just came to a halt. For 40 days, uh, Goliath of Gath, he taunted Israel. He defied God and his armies. This great man that uh, was the champion of the Philistines was defeated without landing a single blow by David, the shepherd boy, you know, a teenager at that time. On the flip side, David he was a shepherd. He was the youngest of his family, but a servant. He was serving his dad and, and his brothers. He was their errand boy, and God called him to be king. Joseph, he's faithful to serve God as a slave and a prisoner in Egypt, put, choosing to forsake sin, to honor his master. And God made him second in command in all Egypt. Samuel, he's a little boy serving in the tabernacle under Eli with his wicked sons. And God promoted him to be a, a, a prophet. Amos, he's a sheep breeder, a picker of sycamore fruit. When God took him as he followed the flock and put the word of God in his mouth to speak to a nation. 
We're not to seek great things for ourselves. We're not to despise the day of small things. The exaltation that God gives, it's more than just social honor or advancement, status, fame, authority, but it's acceptance in the kingdom of God as a citizen, as a beloved son, children of God. In all circumstances, Paul learned to be content in Christ, and may we learn that lesson too. Continuing in Luke 14, verse 12. Then he also said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus addressed the host who invited him. At that same meal, we see that people were vying for honor. They were looking for the most honorable place. A host was honored to have guests, and the more honorable the guests, the more honor for himself. It's just like if you said, oh, yeah, people don't know this, but I actually hosted the Queen of England once for a dinner party. Like, oh, well, that's pretty cool. Yeah, she came to your house? Really? Oh, yeah, bodyguards everywhere. Security is unbelievable, but it was amazing, you know. Okay, so the more honorable the guest, the more honor for the host. Jesus hones in on the man's motivation for whom he invited along. He said, when you give a dinner, don't, don't just ask your friends or your neighbors or the rich folks around you who can repay you. Invite the maimed, the lame, the blind. Now, this isn't a prohibition from extending hospitality to family or friends. It's not a sin to extend hospitality to the wealthy. It may have been that Jesus hosts, he invited people with the hope of gaining something from them, of benefiting from them in some way, whether with a business transaction or a social standing. Or, uh, but the greater blessing would be found by inviting people who could not repay, the needy, the outcast, people who could not bestow any honor. And thus, he would be blessed by God. They would be blessed and he would be blessed. The host needed to choose if he valued honor from God or honor from men. The honor men give, it can easily be stripped away and undone in a moment. But the honor God gives, it's everlasting and it's glorious. When you're planning for a party or a gathering, there can be a lot of thought that goes into something that requires invitations. I remember as a kid, when I was given the chance to host a birthday party, I I would choose people who I was closest to or people I was friends with. And there were a certain amount of obligatory invitees like my brother. And I always was happy to have him along. Um, weddings, formal gatherings, they involve limited space and budget considerations. And we can invite someone because they invited me. They invited me to their wedding. It's only right that I invite them or family members or, or with the hope of, you know, like, we'll probably get a great gift if we ask this person along. There may be reasons we choose not to invite someone because they, they maybe would be, oh, well, whatever. You, may, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're like, you know, when it comes between this person or that person, I think we'll choose this person. And uh, in all of our wrestlings with the guest list, it might all be compiled with self-serving motivation of what's going to benefit us, of what, how we could receive some blessing but we haven't even taken God into account and how Jesus has been gracious and kind to us, how he, he met with people who were undesirable to some 
and would have been socially awkward or outcasts. Like, don't bring the maimed or the blind in here. We're focused on the meal or the event as the end, but God, he's seeking to reward people who lay aside greed and selfishness that they might be a blessing to others. He he has a very long view of things. He's looking to reward people eternally who seek to honor him now in bringing that person along. In those people, like he said, the blind, the lame, the maimed. In the 80s, I took part in a Christmas play. What happened was not in the script of how a Christmas Eve usually goes. Because on our way back home, we were riding home with um, some strangers in the car. This couple um, who had been, they smelled of smoke. They had been living on the street. And my parents felt led by the Lord to take them in. They had no place to stay. And uh, so they moved my sister out of her room to stay with the boys and and they took up her room and, and stayed for many months. People from church helped the couple out with work and with a car. And, and my parents, they showed the love of Jesus by giving them uh, room and board for nothing, compassion. They told them about the Lord. Um, for that season, they became part of our family. And the hospitality, though, it wasn't without a cost because one day they came home to find that this couple had left along with some of my dad's tools and they had been sold at a pawn shop for next to nothing. And the saying goes, once bitten, twice shy. But my parents continue to open their house to, to strangers and to people who, who had needs. And they were rewarded evil for good. Yet I'm confident that at the resurrection of the just, they will be rewarded for their faithfulness to show the love of Jesus to people who uh, did not receive it kindly. Praise the Lord that he worked, that he is working. To be rich towards God is most important. Knowing that God stores up riches for those who love and obey him, it should humble us because we're not deserving of that, of his notice, his provision for the gifts that he gives by his grace. And so that that, uh, principle rings true. He who humbles himself God will exalt. If you could please turn to Philippians chapter 2. These words follow Paul's exhortation for believers to walk worthy of the gospel. Like we were the blind that, that needed eyes opening. We were the maimed and the lame. We were maimed by our sin and by our lust. We were made lame and unable to help ourselves out of that pit. But Jesus has had compassion on us. And he has healed us and he has helped us and he has restored our souls. He's given us rest when we were weary and without strength. The gospel, it's not just the starting point of our walk with God, but the grace and the love and forgiveness that God has shown us, the humility Jesus demonstrated ought to guide our daily decisions. So we can embrace those genuinely loving them, even when they've hurt us, when things have, when we have been disappointed. And, and in that disappointment, we ought to look to the Lord because he's able to supply all our needs and he has. 
Philippians 1, 29, it reads, it says, for, you, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. What conflict is Paul referring to? Well, he'd been in prison for preaching the gospel. It wasn't an outer conflict. It was really an inner conflict because he had this desire to depart and be with Christ, which is awesome. You know, to go to heaven, to be with God forever in a new body. How awesome is that? But he said, but it's more needful for me to stay and his ministry, it was a blessing to others. And so he says, it's needful for me to stay. There's this conflict. I'd love to be with God in person forever in a glorified state. But right now in this season, I, it's a blessing for you that I'm here. On one hand, he wanted to be free from the prison and the chains and injustice, but he realized his survival in ministry, it was a blessing. And when our suffering is great and the temptation to give up is strong, remember, it has been granted, it has been gifted to us, not only to believe in Jesus, but also to suffer for him. Continuing in Philippians 2 verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Paul does not use if as if there may or may not be any consolation. He is saying since, since there is consolation in Christ, and that is solace, comfort. Since there is comfort of love and how comforting it is to know that God loves us. And it's not based upon our performance, but out of his goodness and his grace. Because we have fellowship of the Holy Spirit, where we have a personal relationship with God who dwells within us. Because there is affection and mercy, God treating us infinitely better than we deserve. Let us be as the same mind. Let us love others like he loves us. And so we are to esteem or value others more than ourselves. It's assumed that you are going to, in verse four, look out for your own interests, right? I mean, we live in a body and there are interests that we have, but the interests of others ought to be valued even more. This, this isn't for any of us to demand of someone else, to say, you ought to do this to me. You ought to consider me more important. No, this is God speaking to you. And he's saying, you need to value others more than your own interests. You are responsible on the account of his love, his comfort, his affection and mercy he has shown you, not out of selfish ambition or conceit, not hoping to get something in return, not trying to make a name for yourself so you'll be blessed, but doing this in response, a loving response to what God has done and what you've received from him by grace through the gospel. Paul continued his plea. He doesn't point to himself. In other places, he does talk about his sufferings. Uh, in his sacrifices, but he doesn't put them out there as an example to be followed. He goes straight to Jesus, who was the one. He says, let this mind be in you that was also in Jesus. He, he deserved the highest place, but he made himself a servant, a slave of all. 
He gave his life on the cross for undeserving sinners. His life, his death, the manner of them, that is to govern our lives and our decisions. His love, grace, and humility, and the example of one who humbled himself, whom he, he, God has exalted. We see that in Philippians 2, 9, and 11. It says, therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name, which is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus took the lowest place and God exalted him to the highest above all places. Our knees bow before him in praise. Our mouths are to speak forth his worship and adoration. And we are to exalt him and make him known through our humility by the, the boasting that we do not do. We confess that as sin. And instead of exalting ourselves or considering ourselves, we consider God and others. So may God's humility that we see in Jesus be manifested through us so he will receive glory now and forever. With all that's going on in your life, um, with the conflicts inside and out, it can be hard to stay positive. When we hear bad news, we can feel overwhelmed. But I encourage you to look to Jesus today. Consider him, as it says in Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. We should lay aside those weights and those cares that easily weigh us down. The sin that is a snare of self-promotion, of boasting, of selfishness. And look to Jesus and consider him who suffered. How he did so for the joy that was set before him. He knew what God was going to accomplish. The salvation of your soul by grace. So let's follow him and his example lest we be weak and weary and faint. God is able to restore and redeem. So let's walk in humility and his strength, not our own. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your goodness and for the gospel. Thank you that there was that man in the midst and Jesus healed him, even though he knew it would be frowned upon. Thank you that he demonstrated such power to heal people and to raise the dead and to rise from the dead uh, glorified. Thank you that he has spoken these things to us so our joy would be full. Bring us to a place of humility and repentance before you, Lord, that we might lay aside sin and the cares of this world and choose to follow you. Choose to rejoice despite the sorrow or the conflict that we face in this life. Thank you, Lord, that you are good and you are merciful and kind. And I pray your compassion and your humility would be evidenced in our lives today in Jesus name. Amen.